Meditations on Mark is a production of the University Church in Oxford. For more information, visit universitychurch.ox.ac.uk. Welcome to the fifth of our Meditations on Mark, as we reflect on Mark's account of the Passion of Christ. Meditations on Mark, the fifth podcast, the place called Golgotha. Mark, chapter 15, verse 22. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now, so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, Listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was God's son. The Passion narrative constitutes roughly a third of Mark's Gospel. In the middle of the 20th century, a number of German New Testament scholars observed that the Gospels might be described as passion narratives with extended introductions, or nothing but a passion narrative with a biographical introduction. 
Form critics took up these suggestions to argue that the passion narrative was the organising centre around which Mark developed his gospel. Note how from the beginning of chapter 14, Mark's narrative slows down. We have become used to its breathless pace. Until now, the narrative has described a series of incidents which offer little sense of the intervening days or weeks or months. But from the beginning of the passion narrative, the sequence of events unfolds hour by hour. Taking their cue from the form critics, some scholars have suggested that the passion narrative began as a kind of liturgy in Jerusalem, something a little like the Stations of the Cross in the later church. They suggest that the narrative has been distilled from the practice of early Christians walking through the city of Jerusalem in the footsteps of Jesus, reflecting on passages from the Old Testament and contemplating how each of these events had been foretold in the divine plan. By contrast, other commentators have suggested that the Passion narrative does not imitate an early Christian liturgy, but is an exercise in colonial mimicry, parodying a Roman triumph, a Roman ritual of power. The Dominican Timothy Radcliffe has suggested that the Gospel was written just after the destruction of the Temple in the year 70 AD. He says, The destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple was not something that the Roman Christians would have just heard or read about. They saw it. It was reenacted in their streets in the triumph of Vespasian and his son Titus. Just as in Spain, the Passion of Christ is dramatically replayed in enormous tableaus in the streets. So the Roman Christians had to witness a sort of passion play of the end of the holy city and the place where God had put his name. Enormous tableaus, three or four stories high, illustrated every stage of the campaign. The temple was ritually dismembered before their eyes, the altar of showbread, the menorah, the ritual trumpets, even the scroll of the law were all carried in public through the streets. And finally, this passion play ends with a real death, the execution of the rebel leader Simon, son of Gioras. The emperor and Titus went to the temple of Jupiter and waited while Simon was dragged through the street, mocked and beaten and finally executed. And when it was heard that he had died, the sacrifices were offered to the victorious gods. Radcliffe argues that the whole purpose of Mark's gospel is to address a crisis among the first Christians in Rome. Their expectations had been fed by an apocalyptic imagination, which hinged on an approaching hour when the followers of Jesus would be vindicated and their enemies put to flight. They had waited patiently, and yet, even after the destruction of the temple itself, that hour had not come. At the heart of the little apocalypse in chapter 13 is a passage where Jesus says, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Take heed, watch, for you do not know when the time will come. It was R. H. Lightfoot, the Dean Island professor here in Oxford in the mid-twentieth century, who noted the connection between this passage in chapter 13 and the Passion narrative. In Mark, the coming of the hour is relocated. It is in the Garden of Gethsemane that the disciples should have watched for the hour. As it says in Mark chapter 14, verse 41, And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? 
It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The trials which follow, the crucifixion itself, are a fulfilment of the prophetic words at the end of the little apocalypse, chapter 13, verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. For Radcliffe, the reason Mark uses all this apocalyptic imagery in the course of his gospel is not simply to exploit the tension between what is hidden and what is revealed. Mark is seeking to subvert the language of apocalyptic in order to enable his hearers to see that the glory they anticipated, the kingship of the Messiah they await, the dramatic intervention which they go on hoping for, has already been revealed in the cross. And all the imagery, all the biblical quotations and allusions which we find in the course of the Passion narrative are designed to underline this central insight. The scene is set in the midst of a Passover celebration. The Last Supper is a Passover meal celebrating Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt. The language of the Last Supper is filled with sacrificial connotations. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. In Greek. There is an echo of the language of Mark 10 verse 45, where Jesus speaks of giving his life as a ransom for many. The term ransom and the Passover connotations underline the sense that the death of Jesus is both sacrificial and redemptive. But of course, as we move through the account of the trials, the scourging and mockery, the crown of thorns placed on the head of the king of the Jews, we note that the account of the crucifixion is relatively brief. Jesus is crucified between two thieves or rebels. They occupy the places of honour requested by James and John. But note the dramatic imagery. When it was noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction, the darkness over the earth, the sour wine, the jeering of bystanders, and Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. But note what happens next. First, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the centurion says, Truly this man was God's son. Commentators have noted that the imagery which Mark uses to describe the crucifixion with this extraordinary moment of recognition by not only a Gentile, but one of his tormentors, echoes the language and imagery of two key points in the Gospel, the baptism and the transfiguration. At the baptism, Mark reveals to the reader the identity of Jesus. When the heavens are torn apart, ripped apart, just like those curtains in the temple, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And then again in chapter 9 at the transfiguration, the identity of Jesus is disclosed again. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. 
The transfiguration follows immediately after the first of the Passion Predictions, and as they come down the mountain, Jesus orders them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There follows a discussion about the role of Elijah, which again is echoed in the description of the crucifixion, as the bystanders suggest that Jesus is calling for Elijah in the cry of dereliction. No one can doubt for a moment the intimate connection between these three passages, the baptism, the transfiguration and the crucifixion. Mark's Gospel is a carefully crafted narrative. We imagine that in its breathless pace, it's a rather hurried and unsophisticated attempt to record a series of eyewitness recollections. Listening to these podcasts, you might imagine that with all this stuff about Roman imperial power, about apocalyptic, about Jesus and the politics of the day, that I'm trying to suggest that Mark's Gospel has more to say about politics than religion. But that would miss the point. Mark's writing is profoundly theological from beginning to end. It is no accident that commentators refer to the baptism, the transfiguration and the crucifixion as a form of theophany. Mark is telling us that in the person and actions of Jesus, God breaks the captivity of the human race to the demonic, setting it free to become truly human, to be fully alive. And what Mark is telling us is that in the face of the destruction of the temple, in the face of calamity, suffering and despair, in the raw and anguished cry of dereliction, the promise of salvation has been disclosed to us in the redemption of the cross. And the tragedy is that his disciples were so busy waiting for something else to happen that they missed it. They did not watch. They were not alert. They were not even awake. The paradox at the heart of Mark's Gospel is that it took a relative outsider to notice and to say, truly, this man was God's son. Thanks for listening. The Gospel was read by Elizabeth Dutton. The meditation was offered by me, Will Lamb, Music and sound design by Nicholas Alexander.